On this episode of That Was a Show? Hey, have you guys seen The Nut House? No. No, I haven't. Is that that short-lived Mel Brooks show? Yep. Cold Open. We grew up during peak sitcom, Seinfeld, Friends, The Fresh Prince. But those shows were diamonds in the rough. This podcast is not about those diamonds. It's about the rough. Some sitcoms were briefly popular in their time. Some were canceled almost immediately. You probably won't recognize most of these, and you'll ask, that was a show? That was a show? The podcast about failed or forgotten sitcoms from the 80s and 90s, starring... Bryn Burney, Aaron Yeager, and Andrew Helmer as Barry. A Radio Gizmo production. <laughs> Hi, Barry. How you doing? Hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, you know, we're uh, in the middle of, uh, what is this, the winter of our discontent? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it. I mean, I feel like time has no meaning anymore, so I, I barely even realized it was time to record another episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron, so you've brought us The Nut House to cover this week. Why don't you tell us about it? All right, Bryn. In 1989, coming on the heels of the highly successful movie Spaceballs, which of course spoofed Star Wars, Mel Brooks co-created a sitcom called The Nut House. This show attempts to port a similar style of farcical satire to the small screen. The Nut House is about a big, lavish hotel in New York City owned by the Nut family. The hotel has been struggling financially for a long time, is mostly without guests, and has fallen into disrepair. It's owned by the elderly widow of its founder, Edwina Nutt, played by Cloris Leachman, and managed by Reginald Tarkington, played by Harvey Corman, who takes great name. Mu- great name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a great name, who takes much of the blame for the sad state of affairs. The head of housekeeping is Ms. Frick, also played by Leachman, in a similar vein as her character Frau Blucher from Brooks' Young Frankenstein. We also meet Sally Lonanek, Edwina's personal secretary, played by Molly Hagen. The show ran on NBC from September 20th, 1989 to October 25th, 1989. <laughs> it's a single cam show and just as visually complex as any theatrical feature comedy of the time. In spite of these impressive production values, 11 episodes were produced and it was canceled after only five had aired. <laughs> I chose this show because I thought it fit nicely with this niche of Sports Night and the John Larroquette show kind of oh. capping off our trio of genre bending sitcoms. I generally always liked Mel Brooks and even though it didn't last long, I still had really high hopes that this might be some sort of hidden gem, which would not be without precedent. Because Police Squad, which I enjoyed a lot as a kid, only lasted six episodes and spawned the highly successful Naked Gun series of movies. And it inspired countless others. And I was a huge fan of those along with Airplane and pretty much everything in this style. When I was a kid, I loved all absurd spoof comedies like this. I think we should cover Police Squad in the future, by the way. That'd be fun. That would <laughs> be fun. That'd be a lot of fun, yeah. I guess I should describe what happens in the pilot. Go for it. This series begins with a double episode pilot. We learn that the Nuthouse Hotel is on the verge of financial ruin and poor management is possibly to blame. 
Big Jake Herder is the Texan boss of the powerful Texplex hotel <laughs> chain, played by David Huddleston, who would go on to play another big a few years later, Lebowski. <laughs> He's obsessed with buying the nut house to add to his massive hotel chain. Big Jake sends his assistant Shrike, played by John Delancey, to New York to purchase the nut house with the instruction to not take no for an answer. Shrike discovers manager Reginald Tarkington has been falsifying records and lied about some 600 current guests. He tries to leverage this into blackmailing them into selling the hotel. Edwina Nutt brings in her grandson Charles Nutt III, played by Brian McNamara, and makes him a co-owner of the hotel, hoping that with his help, they can save the hotel from being taken over and as such, the family legacy or whatever. <laughs> Charles Nutt III is a young trust fund playboy. He saves the hotel by booking a conference of Swedish masseuses. <laughs> Sigh. And this triumphant conclusion isn't without the additional payoff of Charles and Sally having their first kiss. You see, they fell in love at first sight solely based on eye contact or perhaps due to his all-white leisure suit. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say he was a walking trope, that whole that whole idea of a trust fund, very very privileged young guy who rises to the occasion. It's like is that really an arc anyone <laughs> anyone really needs? But apparently it was back in the 80s because it was everywhere and he was like literally wearing a white like leisure suit or Miami Vice style suit <laughs> like Miami he was Vice. like <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. But what well, was that a cliche? I guess I it, it 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 is in a today's lens, but no, no. By '89, it was absolutely a cliche yeah. already. <laughs> it was. We were at the end of that decade. We'd seen this a million times. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's very likable in it, though. I, I mean, I, he is. Yeah, you don't hate him, but yeah. it's still just kind of like eye roll. Eye roll. <laughs> Speaking of eye rolls, uh, I mean, the sight gags like the gold Rolex and the Disneyland clock. It's yeah. very it's very <laughs> yeah. airplane. The woman stuck in the phone booth. Again, very typical well, of this well, 80s style of spoof are, comedy. Yeah, but I, I mean, what, the, not airplane. I mean, these are Brooks jokes. Yeah. These are Mel Brooks jokes. They are Mel Brooks jokes, but they're also airplane, Zucker Brothers jokes. Air, airplane wishes they were Mel Brooks jokes. <laughs> well, they, they were they were in a sense in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, oh, playing I, on the same si field. They're a similar ilk, but I, I mean, these are Mel Brooks jokes, like. Through and through, man. Yeah. That Rolex joke is that doesn't get more Mel Brooksy than that. Oh, they they are. I mean, they're Mel Brooks jokes. I'm not saying Mel Brooks got them from anyone else. I'm just saying yeah. that, like in the '80s, the Zucker brothers were really coming into their own as people who were like doing big things with this style of comedy. Mm -hmm. And I think Mel Brooks. So to give a little context here, his previous project was Spaceballs a couple years prior to this show, and yeah. that was in a sense, a very similar style of humor, but a very high concept, extremely high concept spoof of Star Wars, where, sure. you know, it, we know exactly why the comedy works, because there's a very particular context to what's being spoofed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I used to love movies like Airplane and Naked Gun, and I loved yeah. The Police Squad. I loved Mel Brooks movies. I loved Young Frankenstein or Frankenstein. <laughs> So I had very high hopes for this. And mm -hmm. at some point I wrote down, I'm 10 minutes in and I still haven't laughed. So I guess my first question is to pose to each of you. 
did you find this funny? I would say that I did for the first five minutes. Like there were a couple of jokes that kind of like they're yeah. they're silly. They're undoubtedly silly. But there were a couple of jokes that got me right off the bat. I don't know what the exact line is, but he's, you know, the narrator is listing the types of people that have stayed at the hotel and he's listing impressive people. And then he says, and dental hygienists. And I thought it was like, <laughs> it was like a, yeah. a good, like little non sequitur. So I did laugh like a little, I had chuckles, but then after five minutes, I was like, all right, well, they just keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while it was like, okay, like I was desensitized to it. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, I I do like non sequitur jokes in general and silly gags. I really laughed at the uh, the train bit. I only wish the train bit was even more over the top. Like, yeah, I, that's I true. Was, I was full on ready for it to just be a train. Like, yeah. I was like, yes. yeah, there's a train crossing in this. The uh, there's a train crossing in the hotel. I was there for it, and I was almost disappointed when it was just a bunch of. Like carts going by. Yeah. yeah. Just oh, to I've explain, been... just to explain, it's basically a series of hotel carts, you know, the ones that serve uh, room service, room service, yeah. all in a row going by for an extended amount of time. And they kind of set it up that it's like a train crossing. And uh, Sally is really exasperated because, you know, they didn't make it before this series of carts w went by. So they have to wait for it to pass. So it was kind of a cute gag. But you guys thought it would be better if it were actually a train, like taking it further <laughs> it, with the absurdity. It, yeah, absolutely. Like the hotel was built it, over train tracks. Yeah, that's exactly what would have killed me. That's 100 percent what I was expecting when they said that. I thought, oh, I'm going to see like a freight train burst past this door. And the yeah. joke is that the hotel was for some reason built right next to some train tracks. Right. Mind, you, mind you, how expensive a sight gag is yeah, that? Yeah, that would though? be really, I think the problem <laughs> is it's it's kind of, so it's a low concept show, yeah. right? So it's hard to go really hard with the, um, yeah. the absurdity. So they yeah. kind of just like take it only so far. And the sight gags are more just like reaching jokes. Like there's the the sign that says hotel records and compact <laughs> discs and cassettes. I wrote, I wrote that one down too. Oh, that's such a that's such a Brooks. Yeah, oh, I loved it. <laughs> it is, but it's just, and I My get it. Like records are also called vinyl records, but yeah. it's just. I don't know. My favorite sight gag in the entire thing is the is the ten thousand gallon hat on top of the 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 Texas yeah like building. Yeah. I I died laughing because it's just yeah. I didn't realize how much I missed Mel Brooks humor. Yeah, I have to admit I didn't know this show existed before you brought it to me, Aaron. I I really had no idea, and I usually I at least vaguely know about a lot of these shows. But I, I had no idea what it was. And when you told me it was called The Nut House, I was instantly cringing. I, I thought that, you know, it was some sort of story set in a psychiatric hospital or psychiatric institution. And I was like really bracing myself for some sort of really inappropriate and problematic thing. But it's really just like a dumb joke. Like their last name is Nut. <laughs> oh. But I'm glad you mentioned that specific sight gag of the hotel records and cassettes <laughs> and compact discs because I wrote that one down 
That's the kind of joke that I've laughed at a thousand times before yeah. in movies and other contexts where this style of humor has been done. And it didn't get me this time. I didn't find any of this funny, but on some sort of intellectual level, I found that very frustrating because I've always enjoyed this humor so much that I was really grappling with trying to understand why it wasn't working for me here. And eventually I figured out why, but I'm going to kind of bury that lead for later <laughs> in the episode and, so that we can just discuss this organically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching it, I... I... I was overly, I was more fond of it than I was definitely expecting. But watching yeah. it, I was like, there's no way Brendan and Aaron like this. <laughs> <laughs> because let's put it this way. Like, it's outside of Young Frankenstein. Brooke's stuff, you cannot, does not hold up to a critical lens. Pure. Yeah. Spaceballs is very, very funny, but it is so stupid. And, right. you know, offensive and, you know, all that. And, like, they don't hold up. To critical yeah. lenses. I mean, right? watching this, it did make me want to rewatch other old Mel Brooks movies like uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and oh, yeah. Dracula, Dead and Loving It. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'm man. sure if I watched them, I'd be like, oh boy. <laughs> They're both well, and that's the thing is those came out when we were when we were young. Yeah, those are both complete dud movies. Yeah, duds. <laughs> I like, remember laughing so hard at Robin Hood, Men in Tights. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, uh, me too. Well, I think the thing is that this style of comedy, I don't know if it's derived from like a vaudevillian tradition, this kind of really absurd, farcical humor, but it's always of its time. Like it's not character humor. It's not like invest in these people right. humor. It's almost like one off jokes that are going to catch you by surprise. And it's sort of of its time, even sure. when it works well. So I think that some of the most successful movies that we remember as being really successful in this style, they were parodying or spoofing a particular other super successful movie or TV yeah. series from their time and doing so with a style of humor that would have been like edgy or surprising at the time and likely isn't going to hold up because our standards as a society evolve as they should. So one example is a running joke that comes over and over and over in this. The character Ms. Frick, there's this joke that keeps happening over and over <laughs> of Miss versus Ms. Yeah. And it's almost like all the other characters find the idea that she would go by Ms. as so incredibly odd and novel. It's like, yes, we get it. It's the 80s. You found women using the word Ms. to be weird because that's the kind of men you are. Like that joke doesn't work anymore. Like not yeah. only is it problematic, it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to circle back to your point about the one off uh, jokes and how uh, there's so many non sequiturs, which we've already uh, mentioned. But to me, this is maybe the first version of this that didn't maybe make us all laugh as much as more current versions of this do. Like I'm thinking Arrested Development had a lot of like random non sequiturs. And so did like a variety of Tina Fey projects like 30 Rock and uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. They do a lot of those like random. Yes, they do. Yeah. And I think what they do well, the same way that other films from Mel Brooks, for instance, did this well, is that mm. they are non sequiturs, 
but they are still bouncing off of a particular character or plot anchor where there's some sort of context. They are non sequiturs, but mm -hmm. they are playing within a, within certain boundaries that uh, that make them funny because. But maybe not in the pilots. Yeah. Maybe not in the pilots. In yeah, the pilots, you're still finding your characters. Yeah, you're right? still figuring it all out. Yeah, like, can't be let's perfect. Put it this way. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I love, has yeah. a super problematic as fuck pilot. Yeah, like yeah. So you're not you're not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah. right. I think like all of those shows, they don't mm -hmm. rely on the non sequitur and the farcical humor. They mm -hmm. want you to fall in love with the characters, and the non sequiturs are what they're supposed to be. A non sequitur. They're not mm -hmm. the thing. They are like a fun divergence. I think there's characters here, characters that might build, that might be able to grow a bit over the course. There's still always going to be weird non sequitur humor in this show, but there's, there's undeniably, there's a couple of characters. There are, there are. I don't know. I just felt like the way that the time was being invested in the pilot, it yeah. felt like, um, it really did feel like a movie. Oh, and, absolutely. And I'm going to come back to that later when we talk about how it ends. But yeah, it just the whole time, it feels like kind of like when we were talking about sports night and we mm -hmm. discovered that it felt like Sorkin probably wanted to make a one hour drama like the West Wing. And for whatever circumstances, for whatever reasons, that was squeezed into the clothing of a sitcom. This feels mm -hmm. like Mel Brooks just wanted to make a movie. <laughs> and somehow it got squeezed into the apparatus of a sitcom. Everything from the way it's shot to the way characters are introduced, the set pieces, the like editing style, the musical score. It's all movie. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about the fact that there were so many things in the 80s and 90s, whether they're films or television shows, that revolve around a New York hotel. <laughs> that's true. Like, I feel like that's a trope. And there's this weird fascination with it about the inner workings of, of a hotel. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but it, it's funny because I, again, had no idea that it was actually set in a hotel and was very confused when it started. <laughs> <laughs> really great big hotel set, too. Yeah, it was. But it was definitely um, sort of retro. Like it didn't have any, mm -hmm. it was not a modern 1980s feel. It was definitely an old yeah. school. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not conservative, but like a standard old fashioned. Yeah, conventionally yeah. expensive looking hotel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, credit where credit is due. This many sets, this many pratfalls. Yeah, for sure. This cinematography, this cast. I mean- this really was swinging for the fences and trying to turn this style of humor into an episodic thing in a mm -hmm. unique way. Like, yeah. they really went all out. And my God, oh, yeah. those elevator sequences. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The stunt work for those. <laughs> yeah, like those elevator sequences probably cost as much as the budget of the average sitcom at the time <laughs> just to make that work. And they are very anxiety inducing, at least for me. I just, the fact that they're... Almost getting cut in half by elevators <laughs> is like terrifying. Yeah, because they're because the elevator operator is both near and far sighted, depending <laughs> on depend depending on the scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, like I've been overly fond of this show, mostly to be contrarian. I mean, this is a very very dumb show. It's very <laughs> dumb. Like 
80% of it doesn't work. Like that the elevator operator character is so stupid and it doesn't work at all, but whatever. <laughs> no, yeah. that that's good. I I I want you to be contrarian or to like like elements of this show because mm-hmm. I think that part of the way I'm reacting to it is almost like when we when we talked about the John Larroquette show, I went yeah. into that with super low expectations because of my absolutely false memories of what kind of show it was. <laughs> so I was expecting it to be really silly, really dumb, total failure. And I was completely put in my place, not only by like the facts of what actually happened, but that I enjoyed it, that there were, you know, it wasn't without some problems, but there were a lot of elements of that show that worked really well, both mm-hmm. The way it was initially created and even after it was retooled, like both versions of that show, I was pleasantly surprised with how well I thought they worked. And with this, I think I went in with really high expectations of this is going to be like when I was 12 and watching Police Squad for the first time and I'm going to be rolling on the floor laughing. And when that didn't happen, I was (laughs) just so disappointed. See, I I assumed this was going to be a complete train wreck. Like, I was like, there's no way that this is in any way going to be good. I mean, <laughs> Mel Brooks's involvement was not like for me, like I was thinking like it's this is going to be Mel Brooks, like like Bryn mentioned Dracula dead and loving it or, <laughs> or, or Robin Hood men in tights where like basically this was past his prime Mel Brooks who just was just rough jokes and I was <laughs> yeah. and I was kind of surprised and like I was very much like that for the first few minutes I mean like I got a few chuckles at the you know lifestyles of the rich and famous yeah. uh, style, <laughs> style na- narration but like when I was like a couple of minutes in I was like oh this is alright yeah this is, this is okay <laughs> I mean I'll, as bad as it is like especially with like how kind of oh I hate using the word cringy but uh, how cringy uh, <laughs> some of the some of the jokes around Miss Frick were like, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just completely there for them because it's it's fucking Cloris Leachman. Yeah, just, she's just so nailing it. <laughs> she's so funny. Doesn't matter what yeah. she does. Yeah. Um, and I also appreciated the very very specific pop culture references that were part of the you know one off jokes. Um, I don't know if you guys caught the little thing in the scene between Sally and uh, Charles. Uh, it was the point where they're kind of admitting that they like each other. And Sally goes, you like me. You really like me. And then he goes, I do, Sally. Do you guys oh. know what that's a reference to? Yeah, now I do. <laughs> I know it. Oh, it's Sally, yeah, Sally Fields acceptance Sally Fields, speech. Yeah. yeah, Sally Fields 1984 acceptance speech for the Oscars. All right. I mean, that that's that's an impressive uh, <laughs> reference. And I didn't I, catch that. I think that I, was I a... caught that you like me, but I, I missed I missed yeah. that her name was Sally and yeah. that it was one step further of a joke. Like yeah, I caught like... that she referenced that, but he's like, yeah. I do, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> How many jokes after 1984 revolved around you like me, you really like me. I don't know. Oh my God, a lot. A yeah, lot. like so many. That was such a big pop culture phenomenon. It was like almost as big as where's the beef. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, where's the beef? Now we're talking a lot about <laughs> the um, the jokes and the gags and the non sequiturs, but just to speak very briefly about the actual plot of this episode, um, mm-hmm. not that there's that much to say about it, but you know, it is a suitably typical low pretty low-key low concept sitcom story from the time yeah. it's a it's an 80s story it's a yeah. you know we gotta we gotta save our business yeah. against the rich fat cats 
Yeah, you know? except they're also rich fat cats that are just struggling now. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, yeah. that was why the plot of this pilot didn't quite work for me, because the basic premise that they're <laughs> desperately trying to avoid selling the hotel to this rich Texan who has this yeah. successful hotel chain. <laughs> I'm like, you all seem miserable. None of you seem to want to run this hotel. You don't know how to run this hotel. It's a massive hotel. And it feels like this hotel is just bleeding you dry. You made a bunch of money in the past. The grandson is like this, this rich playboy who's living off of a trust fund. It feels like, nah, they should really just bail and sell the hotel. Yeah. At what, yeah, at one point they actually do say rich businessmen are trying to buy the hotel. And I was like, that's so, I loved how on the nose it was. Yeah. Like, yeah. Rich, <laughs> rich, rich businessmen yeah. are coming to buy the hotel. Yeah. Like, I like, do, yeah, yeah, the on-the-nose generic level of that yeah. and the fact that it was like this this Texan with the spittoon and everything, that was <laughs> that's funny. Um, with, uh, with sunflower seeds. Sunflower seeds. Yeah. But yeah. it made me think of The Golden Palace, the show that we talked yeah. about recently, because, you know, they just another bought- Another hotel show. Another hotel show. <laughs> but they just bought a hotel. Not Manhattan, but, you know. No, yeah. No. <laughs> they, they, that premise made sense to me, like- I mean, it, it, did, it didn't, it but... didn't, it didn't, but it did. Or like, I should say it made sense to me why I should find it charming yeah. because they don't have experience running a hotel. They bought somebody else's failed hotel and they're trying yeah. to find a way to make it work. And it's like, this is the opposite. These are the people who should be selling this hotel yeah, to someone the, else yeah. who gets to be the star of the show who tries to make it work. I think that's part of the joke is like, yeah, it's the 80s style joke of we got to save ourselves against the, the other rich businessmen. Yeah. But they're rich and they own a hotel and they're and they're and they're old money. Yeah. Which I think it is. I think that's part of the joke. I think yeah. it's supposed to be ironic that they're the ones trying to defend themselves against somebody richer, basically. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I guess I just don't find that to be something that's going to maybe hold up for 100 episodes. Yeah. Well, I mean, no. <laughs> I think it's more questionable as to why the hotel staff are so invested. Yeah, like if outside of the, yeah, they they'd be fine. Yeah, and they, but they imply that they're all severely underpaid and being exploited. Yeah. Like, like what is their loyalty to this place? They should yeah. want new ownership. Yeah. The, the Nut family is doing a terrible job running this yeah. hotel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the like the hotel manager you get because he's worried about like being caught for like years and years of a fraud like, of, of of fraudulent bookkeeping. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, like if the hotel because clearly the hotel chain's gonna come in and keep it as a hotel and honestly probably keep most of the staff, they're probably all going to be fine except yeah. for him. Yeah. And Fair. the nuts are going to be fine because they're going to sell it. Yeah. 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 There there was the doorman who, I, I guess there's a joke right at the beginning where they reference the fact that he's not even paid a paycheck. He just like works there for room and board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Ms. Frick also references the fact that she lives there or it's her room or something and it's like they all live there yeah it's pretty wild is that a thing do hotel workers sometimes live at i would say not anymore at all yeah maybe that was an but old it, thing at least from the way what media tells me yeah. <laughs> in the past at some point if you owned a hotel you lived in the hotel i guess uh and if you worked in the hotel i suppose you worked in the hotel as well it's it's conceivably plausible that they would all just be living there. Owners definitely. 
would have something in a one-off hotel. I get. I don't know. But just, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. We're not no. authorities on this. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> the other thing that happens is that occasionally it bounces into. Uh, a space where it feels like it's trying to have sincere moments, um, particularly between uh, the grandmother who owns the hotel and her grandson who is uh, taking over partial ownership of it. And there are these moments between the two of them, especially late in the episode, where it feels like they're trying to achieve some sort of like touching moment of sincerity that Mm -hmm. in a parody style comedy can work really well when it's played for irony mm-hmm. to have a, a real like melodrama moment again not to keep bringing it up the, but the movie airplane did that really well and in this case it doesn't feel quite like they're playing it for irony it feels like they're playing it the way that a lot of sitcoms try to have moments of genuine sincerity yeah um you know just because we've been binging on a lot of it, I'll say The Office is an example of a show that does that extremely well. And mm-hmm. it feels the like- The Office US. <laughs> the Office US does that extremely well. And it feels like there are a number of moments in this show where they try to do that. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like I'm, I'm not, on, not on board for this touching moment. I don't, I don't care. But I, mean, <laughs> but I mean, you weren't on board. So, yeah. I mean, uh, they, they were fine as far as, as far as fine as, as little character moments go. They, they were fine. I mean. You know why I feel like they're not because of the white face makeup. Actually, I should explain this. So for anyone who hasn't seen this. Yeah. So Edwina Nutt, the elderly woman who owns the hotel, is one of the two characters played by Cloris Leachman. In this character, she's like bent over with a hunch and she's this really frail elderly woman who appears to be perhaps like 90 and has, I, I would say she's supposed to be well over 100. Yeah, <laughs> over 100. An exaggerated Mr. Burns type. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good example. Female Mr. Burns. Yeah, female Mr. Burns. Incredibly frail and like bleached white face makeup, like white as a sheet of paper. Most of the scenes with her are like nauseating in how cringy they are in like the like the like the the denture thing and like yeah. it's kind of like there's almost, a lot of body there's a lot of body humor body humor yeah, there's a lot of gross gross kinda, moments yeah and it's which is very inherently like ageist now yeah but back which, then it's which like, is ageist and has its problems for that reason yeah but i guess also it's like for the bulk of the scenes with her it has that tone And then suddenly it tries to take a hard turn into these sincere moments with the grandson. And I'm like, I can't with that face makeup. I can't take this seriously. I can't. I I found that kind of amusing, actually. I was like, (laughs) I can't. I I actually was like, I can't believe this is the character. They're going to try to humanize a little like I I was. That's why I kind of liked it. I was like, wow. okay, because of how ridiculous it was. I was like, right on. Yeah. Loves her grandson, just wants the best for him. (laughs) We already mentioned a few of the tropes. This is a very, very tropey show. You know, you got the New York hotels. You've got the young, irresponsible playboy that Mm -hmm. everybody uh, underestimates, but he ends up being the hero. And... (laughs) You also have some other kind of common tropes from the time. The antagonist, which is also not the main antagonist, but sort of the henchman that gets beat up the whole time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Which Played is the, the character. Himself. Yeah. The yep. uh, Norman Shrike character 
is the main assistant to the Texas billionaire. And he keeps like just getting hurt and just going through like awful things throughout the episode. And this is something that we've seen in so much comedy from the 80s and 90s. Much more in movies. Yeah, I would would say say, for sure. Like I think about in Tommy Boy, Rob Lowe's character keeps getting... (laughs) Sorry, guys. She said my she said a button for me, which is just yeah. saying the words "Tommy Boy" makes me yeah. laugh. <laughs> you know what? When we first started talking about the uh, trust fund Playboy character, my yeah. mind went to "I wish this was Rob Lowe." Oh, I was gonna my, say my, because my mind goes there a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he would be much more fun to watch. Um, but actually, the Tommy Boy connection is also there because that's basically what. Um, Chris Farley's character is in that movie, but he's more of a bumbling, mm, like, yeah. you know, trust fund kid <laughs> who saves the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, Shrike is great, though. Like, he's game. Like, he, oh, God. Aaron, what's his character? What's the actor name again? John Delancey. <laughs> John Delancey is great. I mean, he almost always is great, but like, it's, he, he plays this antagonist role very well. Yeah. One really great, just stupid joke about like his name, where he's like, uh, you look at me like I'm a Nazi. And then he's like, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, my, <laughs> I'm a father. I have two kids. And my, my wife is currently working on the third right, or the, the third strike, or third the strike. Shir- the third strike. The, the third yeah. strike. And I was yeah. just like, oh, that's so dumb, but I loved it. That's yeah. such a classic Mel Brooks joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another trope is, of course, the really young, attractive women who are literally there as props to, you know... The Swedish girls. Yeah, the Swedish girls in this case. Specifically, Swedish twins. It is. Swedish yeah. twins are a trope. It's always Swedish twins with mall bangs, and they are, like, they don't say a word, and they're just, like, all over a male character. Yes, yes. There's two sets of, the, there's two sets of that specific type <laughs> yeah. in this episode. Yeah, in, in the, like, the Texas... Yeah. Uh, the the Texas there's a cutaway where they're on the phone and the the Texas oil guy or whatever the hell he is he has two of these women <laughs> just like randomly in the room with him. Oh yeah, and forgot about that and scene. I think in the credits I noticed they were credited as Bimbo One and Bimbo Two. Oh yep, God. I didn't have to look to be like oh. I bet they were credited as Bimbo One and Bimbo Two. Um, that was oh man. I like how you're like, I don't know, Texas oil man. And I was like, yeah, I think he was a Texas oil man before my brain went, oh, right. He's a guy who owns a hotel chain. Yeah. But it might as well be oil. Yeah. yeah I mean, like that's, a Texas. That's just the, yeah. He's that. Yeah. He's that character. A Texas a tex- businessman is a trope I mean, as well. He, will, he, he wears spurs. Yeah. He wears spurs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I'll add a trope that we've talked about before because I, I watched episode three i'll explain a little more why later but it features yet again the bizarre way that comedies at the time would talk about japanese people as this Uh novelty of of (laughs) america we've which we've we've come across like what two three times yeah it's it's really a problem it feels like almost every show in the 80s had to have at least one episode that would make jokes about Japanese people. Americans were very scared of Japanese businessmen entering into their into their lives. It was a fear for some reason. It's one of the reasons why that episode died on the table for me. I found the pacing of this somehow both slow 
and relentless at the same time. I don't know. I get that. I get that. I get that. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it better than that. There was something about the jokes coming fast and constantly and yet edited in a way that felt slow and leaving space for a laugh track that did not need to be there because other. Yeah, it's it's a single (laughs) camera show, not shot in front of an audience and much like Sports Night couple scenes there's a little laugh track just kind of <laughs> yeah. just shimmied in there <laughs> wedged in there yeah yeah just jammed in there there's a line that i had to note because it's the kind of thing that would normally split my sides i'm a ne'er do well the only thing i do well is ne'er <laughs> <laughs> and i it, missed that that's it, great i find it funnier reading charles it. says that. charles says it yeah i find it funnier reading it back now than i did yeah. when i the watched it, it in delivered. the show the yeah. way it was delivered because yeah, i missed it so yeah. i'm normally a huge sucker for that kind of like wordplay joke and i i'm definitely guilty of making jokes like that all the time yeah but in the way that it was delivered in this show I didn't find it funny. I feel like that's the kind of joke that works well in a sitcom when it's like a quick little quip between friends, like a little self-deprecating moment that's in passing, like something that Chandler Bing would say while sitting on the Mm -hmm. couch in the coffee shop. Boom. And it's done. Not something with like a dramatic buildup camera dollies into a tight close, like not something where you're making a meal out of it or like treating it as this is a moment. It's more just mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's just a little thing from riffing. There's something about the delivery of it that I think. Yeah. Like if I missed it, like, yeah, you reading it out, I was like, that's great. I missed it. So clearly yeah. it was not delivered. Well, I think part yeah. of it. Yeah. I think part of it is is the actor and nothing against Brian McNamara. Like he's he's a talented guy. I just think there's something about his presence that wasn't silly enough. You know, like he was too cool and too, you know, handsome. He's a Michael yeah. Bluth, like, or he's an early Michael Bluth. He's a yeah. he's a Michael Bluth before he Michael Bluth goes down the like real asshole <laughs> right. like path. He, but where like he's too, he's almost too straight sometimes. Yes, yes. He's the Michael yeah. Bluth, but they're giving him Job jokes. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, so yeah. funny. Oh, he that'd he be a great, should. That's a great Job joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he's not. Yeah, he's not silly enough, and he, mm-hmm. and there that role I feel personally did call for more silly. It's more of a. It should have been more of a cartoon, you know. Yeah, they're they're the characters that are supposed to be hard edge, like I yeah, like like um, Ms. Frick is supposed to be like the thing is that she's dramatic and intense and hard edged, but he should have been silly. Yeah. And there's like, so there's a reoccurring gag with him, how he can't drink champagne or he, or yeah. he goes over the, but we never see it. Yeah. They just keep referencing that he gets ridiculous when he drinks champagne. We never see it, except like yeah. he's introduced yeah. a- and he says it and they keep hitting on it like, oh, don't give him champagne or he'll get really like, oh, he'll get silly. And I'm like, well, good. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh. exactly. You're expecting the convention of like 30 Rock where they cut away to yeah. a scene where he's like on a uh, st- steals a motorcycle and he's got like it's completely yes. absurd yes. like you're yes. sh- you're showing yes. that moment yes. the pilot would have actually been elevated by yeah. having the scene of him and Shrike drunk together yeah yes. because it would have yeah. given both both of them more to play with oh yeah yeah maybe and, they yeah. filmed it and then just cut it i don't know they're like oh shit we're already up 48 minutes yeah. for this 22 minute pilot uh, you're <laughs> totally right that's the scene that was missing and yet yeah. they spent so much time 
on gags of like a suitcase ripping in half and the panties go flying out or cutting back to the elevator 25 times. And it's like they they spent a lot of time and a lot of money shooting some really like impressive gags. Mm -hmm. And the couple things that we needed to see where we could have like really dug into those characters deeper. That's what was missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. The ending of the pilot. It's this huge set piece type of ending with this big triumphant conclusion, the orchestral score, the massive number of uh, Swedish masseuse conventioners coming into the hotel, flooding into the lobby and the Texan shooting his gun and the kiss and, you know, the, the big dramatic triumphant conclusion to what feels like the ending of a feature film, yeah. not the setup of a series. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does feel like that way. It does feel like a typical '80s comedy that's starring like Michael Keaton or <laughs> or uh, oh, Steve great. Gutenberg. You know, <laughs> like, less 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 great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the the end gag of the episode is they all are you know they're celebrating you know the hotel's not going to be sold so they all they're all walking up to the you know they're walking up. The, to the elevator, they're going to go up to the roof to celebrate, and they walk in, and everything's black. And did anybody else keep waiting for it to turn into like a Looney Tunes gag, and them all? Because like it, I kept waiting for them f- to just fall. Yeah, like they were like they were standing oh. too long, too long in midair, and yeah. the gag was going to be they were going to fall. But it turns out it was like the, oh, they're standing on top of the elevator. Yeah. But like I kept waiting for the Looney Tunes moment where like they <laughs> drop, they yeah. just drop out. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That that definitely uh, came Didn't to mind happen. a little bit, but it was like, uh, like that. With a cartoon sound effect. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's not like there weren't cartoon sound effects everywhere else. And it's not yeah. like they yeah. didn't have the bucking Bronco thing in the Texans boardroom. <laughs> yeah. And all sorts so of other like big so sight dumb. gags where people fly across the room yeah. and crash into and, something. And literally the opening theme song is a cartoon sequence. So Yeah. Yeah. Still trying to grapple with why I'm just not quite finding it as funny as I used to. Like one of my notes is just questioning, like, do I just not find this kind of humor as funny now as I did when I was a kid? (laughs) I think about this suing Sally scene where the staff of the hotel all scramble to get ready for this elderly woman who's about to try to fake a trip and fall accident to be able to sue the hotel, which is apparently something that she does all the time. And so it's like a crane shot. There's maybe a hundred background performers. (laughs) It's a massive set piece scene. They make like a three course meal with dessert out of this joke. And she dives like swan dives off the top of this massive flight of stairs where like a whole bunch of people can catch her. And she's got like this ongoing Thing, you know, I'll get you next time sort of thing. She says, I'll sue you later. I'll sue you <laughs> later. And I think oh, that boy. that scene kind of epitomizes why it didn't work for me in this show. I don't know if either of you remember from Cheers, there's this character who's like a grifter who kind of comes and goes sometimes and tries to rip people off. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Sam Malone knows who he is and yeah. he'll try to come in and have a different mark each time and they're always just trying to deal with this guy but it's kept pretty like low key but it's pretty funny and so I feel like the way that this suing Sally thing plays out as a lavish theatrical scene feels like it's not even trying 
to work for a sitcom world. It's not even trying to create something that would be like a touch point for repeating jokes over time or like something episodic. Hard disagree. Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> I, 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 my favorite thing about it is like, I love that everybody is in on it. It's not only is the hotel, the entire staff ready and they know that they have to catch her, but she knows that they're going to catch her and she enjoys like the cat and mouse of it all too. And like, I just, yeah, it's one of my favorite jokes in the pilot. <laughs> That's a really good point though. I think the cat and mouse thing of it is clever. Yeah, I, I think she was going to reoccur and I think it was going to be a thing where she keeps coming up with schemes and they keep foiling her. And I think it's funny that it isn't the plot, like that it's just part of their day. Like it's like taking out the garbage. They're like, oh, make sure you catch uh, suing Sally this time. Well, anyone who's worked in any sort of public facing job <laughs> has has those regular customers yes, that come in and out or clients, you know, they come in and they, you know, have yes. a stick. That's what it you was. Know, That's I've, exactly I've it. I've worked yes. in bank branches around uh, Toronto, and you know that's that's a thing. Well, and and Bryn and I years ago worked together at a coffee shop, and yeah. we had so many clients that were identified just by like whatever the, cuckoo names we yeah. came up with, who tried to pull the same shit all the time, and yeah. and you'd be like, you get her this time. Yeah, <laughs> you deal with them. Well, I think that's a really good point. I I yeah. agree with both of you that I think that. That could work really well. I think what I'm bumping on is less about the construct of that character, more on a on a visual style level. Mm -hmm. It's more the apparatus that I was bumping on. It's the way it was shot. Like it's the way that it plays out in a very theatrical scene sort of way. Whereas I would have enjoyed that same thing happening in a much more low-key sitcom-y way. Whereas this felt just a little too grand. Sitcoms live in the comedy of small observations and asides. And I would have loved to see this show just sort of merge the two instead of trying to like make things bigger than they need to be. All right, guys. So I guess it's that time again for Six Degrees of Friends. All right, what do you have for us, Bryn? <laughs> yeah, so it was quite connected to Friends, I'm not going to lie. The Nut House is separated from the iconic sitcom Friends by one degree. Oh. Delancey? Molly Hagan actually Ooh. guest starred on Friends. Oh. oh. Which one was Molly Hagan? It was Sally. Sally. Oh. Yeah. And also Gregory Itzen, who plays Dennis, also guest starred on Friends and was in two episodes. He played Phoebe Buffet, of all people. <laughs> he played her father-in-law. Oh. So, yeah, so he's, Paul he's... Rudd's dad. <laughs> oh. He was the Nixon-esque president on 24. Oh. Yeah, and then there's even another additional Phoebe Buffet uh, connection, if, you, if you're willing to hear it. Born ready. I guess so. So through Brian McNamara, okay. who, who played Charles Nutt III on The Nut House, <laughs> he guest starred on Mad About You. Mm -hmm. So it's Mad About You, Phoebe Buffet combination. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you've been banned from using that, but you did warn us. So. I did warn you, and you let me go ahead. So, But it's a loose one because we don't know if, they, if those two characters appeared in the same episode. Yeah. I don't think we ever really looked that far. And I don't know if any of our connections ever appear in the same episodes. <laughs> so basically, there's two one degree connections. Right on. 
All right, Bryn, what about the spinoff? Well, the short answer is everyone that starred and that worked on this show went on to do bigger and better things and continued to have really great careers uh, spanning several decades, including Mel Brooks, who is still working. I saw an IMDb credit for this year. <laughs> that is, he was he was a voice in uh, Toy Story Four like, yeah, last year. Yeah, too. so he's done a lot of voice acting, and he continues to write and produce. And, you know, he's just he's like living his best life. He'd be 95 this year. Yeah. Oh, wow. my, my favorite thing is him playing himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was just going <laughs> to say his season of Curb is exceptional. Yeah. And the whole all the bits. Um, there's that episode of comedians in cars getting coffee where it's yes. him and Carl Reiner and yeah. talking about how they have dinner together every night. It's like the most adorable it's thing. It's so I've ever charming. Seen. <laughs> it's such a sweet moment. Yeah, and and honestly, it was very fun going through and doing this segment for all of these people because they have some fun credits. Uh, I'll start with Molly Hagan. So she's done a ton of television and movies. She's very recognizable. She's not really a household name, but you know you've seen her and stuff. Um, She was actually in Herman's Head, which is a show that... Everybody's been requesting us to cover eventually. She also played Matthew Broderick's uh, character's wife in Election. <gasps> and and you guys yeah. will be excited about this one. She played Sister Roberta in the Seinfeld episode. Uh, oh, my God. That's what it was. <laughs> the Latvian Orthodox episode. No, I knew she was in Seinfeld, but I couldn't remember which yeah. character. So yeah. she plays... There, there she is. Sister yeah. Roberta. So the woman who... <laughs> I brought you another toy I thought you would enjoy. The, she, yeah. the Kavorka The Kavorka thing. episode. So she she <laughs> abandons her vow to the church because she's seduced by uh, Kramer's Kavorka, his, yeah. uh, Animal his magnetism. sexual man- magnetism yeah. that he has, the mm-hmm. mysterious magnetism that no one really understands. Um, I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> Brian McNamara also has done a ton of of TV, and I threw in this one credit for you, Barry. He was in three episodes of The O.C. (gasps) Yeah. Harvey Corman was already pretty legendary, and he worked again with Mel Brooks on Dracula Dead and Loving It and did a ton of voice acting. Gregory Itzen, who plays Dennis in The Nuthouse, went on to do Many, many films and television uh, roles, including roles in 24 and uh, Big Love. And an interesting little tidbit is that both Brian McNamara and Gregory Itzen were both in that really bad Lindsay Lohan movie, I Know Who Killed Me. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Which I found very amusing. And I'm like, is there some weird Mel Brooks connection to that movie? But I couldn't really find one. I just thought it was funny because that's a very infamous movie if you told me mel brooks had written and directed uh i know who killed me it would make a (laughs) lot more sense i was like oh i missed the joke yeah Uh. and we would be remiss if we didn't uh discuss the great cloris leachman who of course played two roles in the nut house she actually passed away just this week she's done so many films and television and just an incredible talent that we'll remember for decades to come. Like she can be a a dramatic actor. She can be a comedic actor. She took her craft to so many amazing levels, like from her film roles in um, The Last Picture Show to, you know, even the little one-off uncredited roles in Bad Santa. She plays the grandmother. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. She's just she's just an incredible incredible performer and uh you know, I'll look forward to rewatching all of her stuff. I'm currently yeah, it- actually just out of sheer coincidence starting this binge on the Mary Tyler Moore show and so she's one of the co-stars of Mary the Mary Tyler Moore show and had her own spin-off of that series called Phyllis. So I'm going to have to like dive into both of those series further. Um, I also really loved her in Spanglish. I think that's like an underrated. That's what I, yeah. yeah. I always remember that joke of her, uh, the, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's 11 o'clock somewhere. And then she points at the clock and it turns over to 11 and she <laughs> grabs the yeah. glass of wine. Yeah. So rest in peace, Cloris Leachman will, will always remember your incredible body of work. Yeah. Just watching her in this, just really, uh, just after hearing about her loss this week, it was, uh. It was really just a, a, a real joy just watching her in this because it was just, man, was she just, just fantastic. Fantastic. She was just great. She's a legend. She's a legend. It was great seeing her in both of the roles that she played in this show that were two yeah. very different characters and seeing that versatility, which is not something that typically happens in a sitcom. And I think the... um the Edwina Nut character only appears in the pilot and not in the uh, future episodes yeah. of this Aww. show. So I don't think they continued that. I think they um, just kept her on in the uh, Ms. Frick role. Uh, but uh, it was really cool to get to see see her do both of mm-hmm. those things and like really st- stretch her legs creatively in those roles. I mean... Oh yeah. yeah. Like there's not even a like it, you know, if you're not specifically looking for it, you 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 could easily miss that it was the same actress. Yeah. Yeah. They share scenes together. <laughs> yeah. But it just shows how incredibly versatile she was as a performer. You know, she really mm-hmm. could do mm-hmm. any tone and any style of performance. Like anything as stupid or or irreverent or emotional or dramatic as a story called for. So I ended up watching episode three, mostly because I wanted to see if it was different stylistically from the pilot, because keeping in mind that the pilot ended the way that a movie ends and felt like something that was concluding rather than the start of something, I really wanted to just see how that then translated into an ongoing series afterwards. Episode three has more traditionally sitcom-y opening titles and opening music. But apart from those credits, it is stylistically exactly the same as the pilot. There are a couple of casting choices that went a bit of a different way for some smaller characters. But overall, the main cast is unchanged and the style of the show is unchanged. Uh, In fact, it opens with a massive sight gag of a taxi cab crash in front of the hotel that causes a tire to go flying and goes flying through the lobby of the hotel, bouncing <laughs> across the lobby until it like goes into the elevator and uh, I think smashes a character into the wall of the elevator. Naturally. Yeah, right on, as natu- in life. <laughs> uh, yeah, naturally. So right off the bat, it's the same big sets, the same single cam style, the same constant non sequitur gags. And predominantly the same cast. I'm not going to go into detail on the plot of episode three, but I will say that the story mostly centers around this INS guy who has come barging into the hotel looking to see if they have any 
illegal aliens working for them so that those people can be rounded up and deported. Oh, dear. And uh, from there, it goes through gags about how, you know, I mentioned before, there's something about some Japanese workers there. I don't know if the implication is that they are there legally or not. I don't really care. Um, where the plot eventually lands as the sort of main target of this INS uh, investigation is actually Ms. Frick, because as it turns out, she does not have a green card and has been living and working illegally in the United States for several decades since soon after the Second World War. Uh, <laughs> she came from Germany by way of Switzerland or something like that. So the INS guy demands to see her papers and uh, she doesn't have any and uh, they claim that they're just like somewhere else and that she's going to get them and he's going to come back. So they basically have like a ticking clock sort of plot, may call it 24 hours to figure out how to keep her in America and where they go, which would be typical of this type of plot, is that if she marries an American, then she can stay. So where it goes is that Reginald Tarkington is going to marry Ms. Frick and, and thus they'll be able to keep her at the hotel. And so there's a whole back and forth thing about her trying to convince him to go through with this. And he was sort of touched on in the pilot that maybe she has like a crush on him or there's some sort of past <laughs> romantic uh, thing going on there. And so he doesn't want to do this, but he's eventually convinced and it becomes a... <laughs> An episode where the the climax of the episode is they get married. Wow. And it's a dumb marriage scene that definitely takes the award for worst marriage early on in a sitcom <laughs> away from townies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm 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 just happy that they got married. I'm actually like I'm actually you are rooting for those kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I was root I was rooting for Miss Frick. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> So, Barry, I'm a network executive in the 1980s, and you're a producer. Pitch me the nut house. Hey, Aaron. Yeah? Man, did I have a wild night. I gotta tell you all about it. Go on. So I went out drinking, right? I went out drinking with Mel Brooks. You know, Mel Brooks, he's, he's a Hollywood legend. Of course. And I, I, I tell you, man, we just got to talking. We got to talking all night, and oh, man, did we have quite a night. And here's the weirdest part about it. He left a half-finished screenplay in my apartment. Oh, what's it about? Well, it's about, you know, a wacky uh, hotel being run by, you know, a bunch of crazy Mel Brooks type characters. It's half finished, but I think we can just kind of shoot it and see if it works. Okay, so you want to, like, try to finish this movie? Yeah, whatever. A movie, a TV show, it's like 48 pages. It it'll fill some time, right? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> okay, so what's everyone's final thought about this show? My final thoughts on it, like, it's complete stupid mess and uh you know but it, i got some mel brooks chuckles out of it and that was enough for me when we were in film school critiquing each other's work if someone didn't quite like something they would often say it was well shot well this was <laughs> very well shot <laughs> yeah it just reinforced for me how much i want to watch cloris leachman on screen yeah yeah everybody just go watch young frankenstein Totally agree with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And cut to credits. That Was a Show is a production of Radio Gizmo. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram for info about upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends about it. 
next time on That Was a Show. So what were your first reactions? A whole show based around job shaming people who make deliveries. Cool. I mean, the soundtrack was awesome. <laughs> I No, I was actually, I was like, yeah, I forgot that I kind of liked R.E.M. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Gizmo.